Chapter Twenty Six of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On to Boston. With plenty of time to think, I thought, crouched low in my seat, silent as an owl. True, I dozed off now and again, but even when shortened by these periods of forgetfulness, the journey seemed interminable, and when I reached the grimy old shed of a station, which was the Chicago terminal of the Northwestern in those days, I was glad of a chance to taste outside air, no matter how smoky it reported itself to be. My brother, who was working in the office of a weekly farm journal, met me with an air of calm superiority. He had become a true Chicagoan. Under his confident leadership, I soon found a boarding place and a measure of repose. I must have stayed with him for several days, for I recall being hypnotized into ordering a twenty-dollar tailor-made suit from a South Clark Street merchant. You know the kind. It was a Prince Albert suit, my first made-to-order outfit, but the extravagance seemed justified in face of the known elegance of man's apparel in Boston. It took me thirty-six hours more to get to Boston, and as I was ill all the way, I again rode in the smoking car, a less triumphant Jason, never entered the city of light and learning. The day was a true November day, dark and rainy and cold, and when I confronted my cloud-built city of domes and towers, I was concerned only with a place to sleep. I had little desire of battle and no remembrance of the golden fleece. Up from the Hussack station and over the slimy, greasy pavement, I trod with humped back, carrying my heavy valise, it was the same imitation leather concern with which I had toured the city two years before, while gay little street cars tinkled by, so close to my shoulder that I could have touched them with my hand. Again I found my way through Haymarket Square to Tremont Street, and so at last to the common, which presented a cold and dismal face at this time. The glory of my dream had fled. The trees, bare and brown and dripping with rain, offered no shelter the benches were sodden the paths muddy and the sky lost in a desolate mist shut down over my head with oppressive weight i crawled along the muddy walk feeling about as important as a belated beetle in a july thunderstorm half of me was ready to surrender and go home on the next train but the other half the obstinate half sullenly forged ahead busy with the problem of a roof and bed my experience in rock river now stood me in good hand stopping a policeman i asked the way to the young men's christian association the officer pointed out a small tower not far away and down the tremont street walk i plodded as wretched a youth as one would care to see humbled apologetic i climbed the stairway approached the desk and in a weak voice requested the address of a cheap lodging place from the cards which the clerk carelessly handed to me i selected the nearest address which chanced to be on boylston place a short narrow street just beyond the public library it was a deplorably wet and gloomy alley but i ventured down its narrow walk and desperately knocked on the door of number twelve a handsome elderly woman with snow-white hair met me at the threshold she looked entirely respectable 
and as she named the price which i could afford to pay i accepted her invitation to winter the house swarmed with life somebody was strumming a banjo a girl was singing and as i mounted the stair to the first floor a slim little maid of about fourteen met us this is my daughter fay said the landlady with manifest pride left to myself i sank into a chair with such relief as only the poor country boy knows when at the end of a long tramp from the station he lets slip his handbag and looks around upon a room for which he has paid it was a plain little chamber but it meant shelter and sleep and i was grateful i went to bed early i slept soundly and the world to which i awoke was new and resplendent my headache was gone and as i left the house in search of breakfast i found the sun shining just around the corner on tremont street i discovered a little old man who from a sidewalk booth sold delicious coffee in cups of two sizes one at three cents and a larger one at five cents he also offered doughnuts at a penny each having breakfasted at an outlay of exactly eight cents i returned to my chamber which was a hall room eight feet by ten and faced the north it was heated theoretically from a register in the floor and there was just space enough for my trunk a cot and a small table at the window but as it cost only six dollars per month i was content i figured that i could live on five dollars per week which would enable me to stay till spring i had about one hundred and thirty dollars in my purse from this sunless nook this narrow niche i began my study of boston whose historic significance quite overpowered me i was alone mr bashford in portland maine was the only person in all the east on whom i could call for aid or advice in case of sickness my father wrote me that he had relatives living in the city but i did not know how to find them no one could have been more absolutely alone than i during that first month i made no acquaintances i spoke to no one a part of each day was spent in studying the historical monuments of the city and the remaining time was given to reading at the young men's union or in the public library which stood next door to my lodging house at night i made detailed studies of the habits of the cockroaches with which my room was peopled there was something uncanny in the action of these beasts they were new to me and apparently my like had never before been observed by them they belonged to the shadow to the cold and to the damp of the city whereas i was fresh from the sunlight of the plain and as i watched them peering out from behind my wash basin they appeared to marvel at me and to confer on my case with almost elfish intelligence tantalized by an occasional feeble and vacillating current of warm air from the register i was forced at times to wear my overcoat as i read and at night i spread it over my cot i did not see the sun for a month the wind was always filled with rain or sleet and as the lights in bates hall were almost always blazing i could hardly tell when day left off and night began it seemed as if i had been plunged into another and darker world a world of storm of gray clouds of endless cold having resolved to keep all my expenses within five dollars per week i laid down a scientific plan for cheap living 
i first nosed out every low-priced eating-place within ten minutes walk of my lodging and soon knew which of these joints were wholesome and which were not just around the corner was a place where a filling dinner could be procured for fifteen cents including pudding and a little lunch counter on tremont street supplied my breakfast not one nickel did i spend in car fare and yet i saw almost every celebrated building in the city however i tenderly regarded my shoe soles each night for the cost of tapping was enormous my notion of studying at some school was never carried out the boston university classes did not attract me the harvard lectures were inaccessible and my call upon the teacher of expression to whom mr bashford had given me a letter led to nothing the professor was a nervous person and made the mistake of assuming that i was as timid as i was silent his manner irritated me and the outburst of my resentment was astonishing to him i was hungry at the moment and to be patronized was too much this encounter plunged me into deep discouragement and i went back to my reading in the library with a despairing resolution to improve every moment for my stay in the east couldn't last many weeks at the rate my money was going may would see me bankrupt i read both day and night grappling with darwin spencer fisk Helmholtz, haeckel all the mighty masters of evolution whose books i had not hitherto been able to open for diversion i dived into early english poetry and weltered in that sea of song which marks the beginnings of every literature conning the ballads of ireland and wales the epics of ireland the early german and the songs of the troubadours a course of reading which started me on a series of lectures to be written directly from the study of the authors themselves this dimly took shape as a volume to be called the development of english ideals a sufficiently ambitious project among other proscribed books i read whitman's leaves of grass and without doubt that volume changed the world for me as it did for many others its rhythmic chants its wonderful music filled me with a keen sense of the mystery of the near at hand i rose from that first reading with a sense of having been taken up into high places the spiritual significance of america was let loose upon me herbert spencer remained my philosopher and master with eager haste i sought to compass the synthetic philosophy the universe took on order and harmony as from my five-cent breakfast i went directly to the consideration of spencer's theory of the evolution of music or painting or sculpture it was thrilling it was joyful to perceive that everything moved from the simple to the complex how the bowstring became the harp and the egg the chicken my mental diaphragm creaked with the pressure of inrushing ideas my brain young sensitive to every touch took hold of facts and theories like a phonographic cylinder and while my body softened and my muscles wasted from disuse i skittered from pole to pole of the intellectual universe like an impatient bat i learned a little of everything and nothing very thoroughly with so many peaks in sight i had no time to spend on digging up the valley soil my only exercise was an occasional slow walk i could not afford to waste my food in physical effort and besides i was thinly dressed and could not go out except when the sun shone my overcoat was considerably more than half cotton 
and a poor shield against the bitter wind which drove straight from the arctic sea into my bones even when the weather was mild the crossings were nearly always ankle-deep in slush and walking was anything but a pleasure therefore it happened that for days i took no outing whatsoever from my meals i returned to my table in the library and read until closing time conserving in every way my thirty cents worth of food units in this way i covered a wide literary and scientific territory humped over my fitful register i discussed the nebular hypothesis my poets and scientists not merely told me of things i had never known they confirmed me in certain conceptions which had come to me without effort in the past i became an evolutionist in the fullest sense accepting spencer as the greatest living thinker fisk and galton and allen were merely assistants to the mastermind whose generalization included in their circles all modern discovery it was a sad change when leaving the brilliant reading room where my mind had been in contact with these masters of scientific world i crept back to my minute den there to sit humped and shivering my overcoat thrown over my shoulders confronting with scared resentment the sure wasting of my little store of dollars in spite of all my care the pennies departed from my pockets like grains of sand from an hourglass and most disheartening of all i was making no apparent gain toward fitting myself for employment in the west furthermore the greatness the significance the beauty of boston was growing upon me i felt the neighboring presence of its autocrats more definitely and powerfully each day their names filled the daily papers their comings and goings were carefully noted william dean howells oliver wendell holmes john g whittier edwin booth james russell lowell all these towering personalities seemed very near to me now and their presence even if i never saw their faces was an inspiration to one who had definitely decided to compose essays and poems and to write possibly a history of american literature symphony concerts the lowell institute lectures the atlantic monthly all the distinctive institutions of the hub had become very precious to me notwithstanding the fact that i had little actual share in them their nearness while making my poverty more bitter aroused me in a vague ambition to succeed in something i won't be beaten i will not surrender i said being neither a resident of the city nor a pupil of any school i could not take books from the library and this inhibition wore upon me till at last i determined to seek the aid of edward everett hale who had long been a great and gracious figure in my mind his name had been among the authors of our rainy day game on the farm i had read his books and i had heard him preach and as his lend a hand helpfulness was proverbial i resolved to call upon him at his study in the church and ask his advice i was not very definite as to what i expected him to do probably i hoped for sympathy in some form the old man received me with kindness but with a look of weariness which i quickly understood accustomed to helping people he considered me just another case with hesitation i explained my difficulty about taking out books with a bluff roar he exclaimed well well that is strange have you spoken to the librarian about it i have dr hale 
but he told me there were twenty thousand young students in the city in precisely my condition people not residents and with no one to vouch for them cannot take books home i don't like that he said i will look into that you shall be provided for present my card to judge chamberlain i am one of the trustees and he will see that you have all the books you want i thanked him and withdrew feeling that i had gained a point i presented a card to the librarian whose manner softened at once as a protege of dr hale i was distinguished i will see what can be done for you said judge chamberlain thereafter i was able to take books to my room a habit which still further imperiled my health for i read fourteen hours a day instead of ten naturally i grew white and weak my dakota tan and my corn-fed muscle melted away the only part of me which flourished was my hair i begrudged every quarter which went to the barbers and i was called most of the time except when i infested the library and i was hungry all the time i knew that i was physically on the downgrade but what could i do nothing except to cut down my expenses i was living on less than five dollars a week but even at that the end of my stay in the city was not far off hence i walked gingerly and read fiercely bates hall was deliciously comfortable and every day at nine o'clock i was at the door eager to enter i spent most of my day at the desk in the big central reading room but at night i haunted the young men's union thus adding myself to a dubious collection of half-demented ill-clothed derelicts who suffered the contempt of the attendants by reason of their filling all the chairs and monopolizing all the newspaper racks we never conversed one with another and no one knew my name but there came to be a certain diplomatic understanding amongst us somewhat as snakes rabbits hyenas and turtles sometimes form happy families there was one old ruffian who always sniffed and snuffed like a fat hog as he read monopolizing my favorite newspaper another member of the circle perused the same page of the same book day after day laughing vacuously over its contents never by any mistake did he call for a different book and i never saw him turn a leaf no doubt i was counted as one of this group of irresponsibles all this hurt me i saw no humor in it then for i was even at this time an intellectual aristocrat i despised brainless folk i hated these loafers i loathed the clerk at the desk who dismissed me with a contemptuous smirk and i resented the formal smile and impersonal politeness of mr baldwin the president of course i understood that the attendants knew nothing of my dreams and my ambitions and that they were treating me quite as well as my looks warranted but i blamed them just the same furious at my own helplessness to demonstrate my claims for higher honors during all this time the only woman i knew was my landlady mrs davis and her daughter fay once a week i curtly said here is your rent mrs davis and yet several times she asked with concern how are you feeling you don't look well why don't you board with me i can feed you quite as cheaply as you can board yourself it is probable that she read slow starvation in my face but i haughtily answered thank you i prefer to take my meals out as a matter of fact i dreaded contact with the other boarders 
as a member of the union a certain number of lectures were open to me and so night by night in company with my fellow nuts i called for my ticket and took my place in line at the door like a charity patient at a hospital however as i seldom occupied a seat to the exclusion of anyone else and as my presence usually helped to keep the speaker in countenance i had no qualms the union audience was notoriously the worst audience in boston being in truth a group of intellectual mendicants waiting for oratorical hand-me-outs if we didn't happen to like the sandwiches or the dry doughnuts given us we threw them down and walked away nevertheless in this hall i heard nearly all the great preachers of the city and though some of their cant phrases worried me i was benefited by the literary allusions of others carpenter retained nothing of the old-fashioned theology and hale was always a delight so was minot savage dr bartol a quaint absorbing survival of the concord school of philosophy came once and i often went to his sunday service it was always joy to enter the old west meeting-house for it remained almost precisely as it was in revolutionary days its pews its curtains its footstools its pulpit were all deliciously suggestive of the time when stately elms looked in at the window and when the minister tall white-haired black-cravated arose in the high pulpit and began to read with curious sing-song cadences a chant from job i easily imagined myself listening to ralph waldo emerson his sermons held no cheap phrases and his sentences delighted me by their neat literary grace once in an address on grant he said he was an atmospheric man he developed from the war cloud like a bolt of lightning perhaps mino savage pleased me best of all for he too was a disciple of spencer a logical consistent and fearless evolutionist he often quoted from the poets in his sermon once he read whitman's song of myself with such power such sense of rhythm that his congregation broke into applause at the end i heard also at tremont temple and elsewhere men like george william curtis henry ward beecher and frederick douglas but greatest of all in a certain sense was the influence of edwin booth who taught me the greatness of shakespeare and the glory of english speech poor as i was i visited the old museum night after night paying thirty-five cents which admitted me to a standing place in the first balcony and there on my feet and in complete absorption i saw in wondrous procession hamlet lear othello petruchio sir giles overreach macbeth iago and richelieu emerge from the shadow and reenact their tragic lives before my eyes these were my purple splendid hours from the light of this glorious mimic world i stumbled down the stairs out into the night careless of wind or snow my brain in a tumult of revolt my soul surging with high resolves the stimulation of these performances was very great the art of this prince of tragedy was a powerful educational influence along the lines of oratory poetry and the drama he expressed to me the soul of english literature he exemplified the music of english speech his acting was at once painting and sculpture and music and i became still more economical of food in order that i might the more often bask in the golden atmosphere of his world i said 
I, too, will help to make the deadlines of the great poets speak to the living people of today, and with new fervor bent to the study of oratory as the handmaid of poetry. The boys who acted as ushers in the balcony came at length to know me, and sometimes when it happened that some unlucky suburbanite was forced to leave his seat near the railing, one of the lads would nod at me and allow me to slip down and take the empty place. In this way, I got closer to the marvelous lines of the actor's face and was enabled to read and record the subtler, fleeter shadows of his expression. I have never looked upon a face with such transcendent power of externalizing and differentiating emotions, and I have never heard a voice of equal beauty and majesty. Booth taught millions of Americans the dignity, the power, and the music of the English tongue. He set a high mark in grace and precision of gesture, and the mysterious force of his essentially tragic spirit made so deep an impression upon those who heard him that they confused him with the characters he portrayed. As for me, I could not sleep for hours after leaving the theatre. Line by line, I made mental note of the actor's gestures, accents, and cadences, and afterward wrote them carefully down. As I closed my eyes for sleep, I could hear that solemn chant, Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. With horror and admiration, I recalled him when a Sir Giles, with palsied hand helpless by his side, his face distorted, he muttered as if to himself, Some undone widow sits upon my sword. Or when as Petruchio, in making a playful snatch at Kate's hand with the blaze of a lion's anger in his eyes, his voice rang out, were it the paw of an angry bear, I'd smite it all, but as it skates, I kiss it. To the boy from the cabin on the Dakota Plain, these stage pictures were almost incommunicable beauty and significance. They justified me in all my daring. They made any suffering, past, present, or future, worthwhile. And the knowledge that these glories were evanescent, and that I must soon return to the Dakota Plain only deepened their power and added to the grandeur of every scene. Booth's home at this time was on Beacon Hill, and I used to walk reverently by just to see where the great man housed. Once, the door being open, I caught a momentary glimpse of a curiously ornate umbrella stand and the soft glow of a distant lamp, and the vision greatly enriched me. This singularly endowed artist presented to me the radiant summit of human happiness and glory, and to see him walk in and out of his door was my silent hope. But alas, this felicity was denied me. Under the spell of these performers, I wrote a series of studies of the tragedian in his greatest roles, Edwin Booth as Lear, Edwin Booth as Hamlet, and so on, recording with the minutest fidelity every gesture, every accent, till four of these impersonations were preserved on the page as if in amber. I reread my Shakespeare in the light of Booth's eyes, in the sound of his magic voice, and when the season ended, the city grew dark, doubly dark for me. Thereafter, I lived in the fading glory of that month. These were growing days. I had moments of tremendous expansion, hours when my mind went out over the earth like a freed eagle, that these flights were always succeeded by fits of depression as i realized my weakness and my poverty nevertheless i persisted in my studies under the influence of spencer 
i traced a parallel development of the arts and found a measure of scientific peace under the inspiration of whitman i pondered the significance of democracy and caught some part of its spiritual import with henry george as guide i discovered the main cause of poverty and suffering in the world and so in my little room living on forty cents a day i was in a sense profoundly happy so long as i had a dollar and a half with which to pay my rent and two dollars for the keepers of the various dives in which i secured my food i was imaginatively the equal of booth and brother to the kings of song and yet one stern persistent fact remained my money was passing and i was growing weaker and paler every day the cockroaches no longer amused me coming as i did from a land where the sky made up half the world i resented being thus condemned to a nook from which i could see only a gray rag of mist hanging above a neighboring chimney in the moments when i closely confronted my situation the glory of the western sky came back to me and it must have been during one of these dreary storms that i began to write a poor faltering little story which told of the adventures of a cattleman in the city no doubt it was the expression of the homesickness at my own heart but only one or two of the chapters ever took shape for i was tortured by the feeling that no matter how great the intellectual advancement caused by hearing edwin booth in hamlet might be it would avail me nothing when confronted by the school committee of blankville illinois i had moments of being troubled and uneasy and at times experienced a feeling that was almost despair End of chapter twenty six